Hello, listeners. I am so excited to be back on the podcast after a six-week break having my fourth son, Desmond Oaks. I am getting adjusted to homeschooling my older three boys with the newborn in tow, but I'm hoping to be able to get out podcast episodes just as regularly as I did before. So I have a treat for you today. It is an interview with Donna Goff. We are talking all about the one room schoolhouse style of teaching. And mostly we're talking about why it was so effective and why it should not have gone into extinction and how we can employ those same methods at home with our families, as well as how to adapt the Charlotte Mason method to fit into a family style learning. It's a little over an hour long, but as I was listening and editing, I could not find anything I wanted to take out. So I hope you enjoy this long episode. There is so much to gain from what Donna has to say about education and family style learning. You're listening to Simple Wonders, the podcast for parents who want to raise happy, curious, lifelong learners. Hi, I'm your host, Jessica Smith, certified family life educator and mama of three. Join me as we explore simple tools to nurture your child's heart and mind. Today, I am speaking with Donna Goff. She is the owner and director at MentoringOurOwn.com. She is known as the Homeschool Mommy Mentor helping moms succeed in homeschooling, family, home, and life. Donna and her husband, Roger, are parents of seven children and 15 grandchildren. She began homeschooling in 1983 and is still in the trenches. She earned a Bachelor's of Art degree in Fine Art and Design and a Master of Arts degree in Education. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm so excited to be chatting with you today about one room schoolhouse and family style learning. When I attended and spoke at a summit in January, Donna had organized, I got to learn more about her style of educating her children and using Charlotte Mason's methods. And it just really rung true for me. So I asked her to come on today and talk more about that. So can you tell us your experience homeschooling with your seven children and kind of what you what you did? Well, it was it was a journey, if you will. I homeschooled off and on at the very beginning. Um one year on, one year off, uh, because I wasn't sold on the idea to homeschool. Uh it was the principal's suggestion. I suggest you homeschool your children because I had children that entered school already knowing how to read and I didn't teach those boys to read they taught themselves and and uh they once they learned how to read they were just running and the school couldn't keep up with them and that's not how our schools are set up and I really had to push to get one child grade skipped um, because he was completely shutting down and um but usually if they do that within a year, they're ready to skip again. And that I'll go into uh, that more as we get along in here. But when I started Charlotte Mason, I had already been homeschooling for 10 years. 
and we moved here and I read in the uh, state homeschool newsletter about uh, nature studies and it really resonated with me. It was an article by Penny Gardner. And so I called her and she says, well, come up, you know, to my thing. And I came up to her meeting and she was doing a support meeting every month. And I saw the, for the children's sake and a couple of years before, or five years before that, I saw the book, picked it up, read a few lines, closed the book, decided it wasn't for me, had no clue what it was really about. And I about died when I saw the book. And she says, I want you to take this home and read it, the whole thing. And I said, okay. And then she had me read Charlotte Mason. I was totally taken. And at home, I was trying to figure out how I was going to uh, make this all work. Because Charlotte Mason wanted short lessons because of their attention span is short. She wanted variety because as you have variety, you make more brain connections. Um, but there's also repetition in some ways, which solidifies the connections between. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a lot to, to process. And, you know, the variety of different areas and the way that Charlotte Mason taught uh, was hands-on. It really doesn't take prep work by the mom. Mm -hmm. God has provided the lesson when they go out and do nature studies. And when you read a, a living book, the book makes the connections. And when they do narration, you're not having to prepare it for them. There, it's It's what you've read. And so mm -hmm. I thought, how do I integrate all that? And that's what we'll get into today in this uh, podcast, I guess. Yeah. So, so I think a lot of the time when moms are introduced to Charlotte Mason and they're trying to adhere to it as much as they can, they look to her schools and they were based in forms, which were still kind of mixed age, you know, like six to nine to 10 to 12. But in America and for most of the history of time in the world, there were one room schoolhouses or kids learned as a family. So um, having a one-room school schoolhouse or family-style learning isn't a new thing. It was really common until about a hundred years ago. Correct? Was that about when they ended? Um, they had one-room schoolhouses in some parts of the United States all the way up until 2010, when um, okay. when Common Core came in. But as a as a rule. Most com uh, most um, one room schoolhouses dissolved when we got into mass uh, schooling. The private academies were usually not graded, age grade based. Uh, children moved through by mastery. Uh, dame schools, which were schools in America, kind of like in Europe, they called them cottage schools, and they were uh, moms or single women sometimes men that would have students in. And basically those were mastery-based learning as well. Um, and the one-room schoolhouse, during the, when they put together the Northwest Ordinance in the United States, which was the uh, framework for new states coming in after the 13 and colonies, 
they wanted to have a school in every town. But these schools were one room. And basically, there was no kindergarten. Kindergarten was introduced by somebody from Germany uh, that had come to the United States, a, a follower follower of Froebel. But they did, um, didn't have kindergartens in these one-room schoolhouses. It was typically, uh, they, they would have eight grades. They, they call it grades, but it's actually eight years. And they would typically start about eight or nine years old. And the year before they graduated is when they learned math. They learned all the math that we break up all these years. But during that time, up until that time, these children were on the farm and in their father's shops. They understood what an acre was and a bushel was and how many seeds would plant a row and they collected eggs. And so they lived math contextually. And then when their brains was were more developed, let's let's say they're in school eight years, their seventh year, they had a one-year math program that taught them all of basic math up to pre-algebra and business math. And the book was, I have one that was my father's father's book and his older brother used it and everything in Kentucky. And it was a one-year math book. And then my husband's um, grandmother, I knew her, she lived to be 95, brilliant woman. Uh, she taught in a one-room schoolhouse in in uh, New York State, and I have her math book, and it's a little bit thicker. But those math books had no uh, no workbook pages. <laughs> they basically they basically taught the concepts, and the children would do the problems on the board. Okay. So in a in a one-room schoolhouse. The basic time there was spent in general knowledge. And then the kids were, the children were divided into two groups, the beginners and the advanced. The beginners were learning to read and they were learning penmanship. And they were considered able to read well when they could read the Bible. Hmm. Um, typical one-room schoolhouses used maybe the first three books in McGuffey's. Okay. For reading, you know, yeah. and then, then in their seventh year, they would learn grammar and they would learn how to write essays and they would learn the math. And then they could take the test that they would take for graduation the next year. And it's a pretest, if you will, then. But if they waited, if they waited until their eighth grade year, they only had one chance to take the final. In their eighth or last year, they would have the opportunity uh, because they've taken math the previous year, they could take surveying or Euclidean geometry. And the Euclidean geometry is basically algebraic geometry. There, there are no numbers in Euclid. It's all A plus B, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. It just... Uh, how to uh, figure out circles and 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 things, but the 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 surveying also used geometry as well. So they were building on what they had. 
but they didn't spend all those years learning math and, and grammar all those years. Now, city schools, some city community schools, uh, common schools that were set up in larger towns did divide by age or start at six. But for the vast majority of America, they were in one room schoolhouses. And uh, so that's how you end up with things like raised arithmetic, first grade, second grade, third grade, whatever. Those books were used in city schools where they were dealing with masses of children. And usually those children didn't move ahead unless they passed the knowledge that they learned. But about 100 years ago, we got into this thing of real mass, mass schooling. And they bust children in from the country to these okay. bigger cities. And um, they, they learned really quickly that not every child is developmentally at the same place, but they had passed laws because they wanted to keep children out of the factories. And they passed laws making school compulsory. And prior to compulsory education in the United States, less than 10% were being educated. Uh, some of those children were working in factories. Others were staying home taking care of younger siblings while the parents worked in factories. So this yeah. was mostly this was mostly working class America. Okay. And once they got in there and they started finding out that uh, children weren't ready for the material, they started doing a thing called spiral learning mm -hmm. where they'd get 80% new content in math. And the areas that they use spiral learning were specifically math. Okay. They, they teach them little bits of pieces of grammar along the way, but grammar and spelling are more abstract and require more abstract abilities. And usually that flowers after puberty. Puberty releases hormones that change the brain. And then abstract uh, learning becomes a little bit easier than before. Prior to that time, probably about 25% of children uh, are developed to the point where they can use their abstract really well and their concrete learning, but most children are concrete, mm -hmm. which is really kind of interesting because at the end of eighth grade in the United States, 68% of children are not reading proficiently at grade level or above. And that's today. That's today. Mm -hmm. And 75% are not reading uh, are not uh, doing math at grade level or above proficiently. You know, basic level, basic understanding is one thing, but being proficient at it is another. And that's going into high school. And usually what they do is they tell you 25% are proficient in math and 32% and are proficient in reading. That doesn't tell you the magnitude of it showing how many aren't proficient is the mind blower you know yeah. the 75 percent in math and 30 uh 68 in in reading and it doesn't really improve that much at the end of high school uh 
only 24% of students are proficient in math at 12th grade level or above. And reading proficiency doesn't go that far. And so the way that they've um, they've tried to educate masses by putting them in grades and having specific things you need to learn at the at the end of each grade is clearly not working as well as they'd hoped. <laughs> well, that's true. And part of it is the the grade thing was logistical. Let's break it up in grades so that when they're 18, they all go out into the adult world. Mm-hmm. But that meant that when you came into first grade, ready or not, this is what you're getting. Second grade, ready or not. The second part of the logistics is they were given the charge to have the children at school a certain block of time. Mm-hmm. Other countries like Finland spend far less time. Uh, they have two to three 45-minute class deals a day. And... 15 minutes mandatory every hour they're there in recess because they understand that children developmentally need the recess. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, American schools that have looked at the Finnish schools and put recess back in found that their students did better. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are taking things that are normal development and we are pushing it aside and, and looking at play and the things children need as something that is frivolous or extra. And we're replacing it with stuff that children don't need at that age. They'll learn faster at another age. You know, my son was talking to a child. Um, I think it was one, one of his uh, activity classes, uh, gym classes. And he w- went to a private school and he said that if they aren't quiet during the lessons, then they lose recess. And if it's just, if, you know, just one or two kids are being hyper, then the whole class loses their recess time. And I thought that's exactly what they need to help them focus. But, and I don't know how many schools do this. I mean, this was a private school, so they're allowed to do that. But I've also talked to other kids and in elementary school, they have one recess, one recess a day during the six to eight hours that they're there. Yes. When I was in school, we had a morning recess and we had an afternoon recess and we were there from eight until two. And the afternoon recess was a little bit longer. The morning recess was shorter, but in Finland, the teacher cannot keep a child in for discipline reasons or for remedial reasons. All things need to happen in the classroom and there's zero homework. So they're not getting homework. They're not getting homework. They're getting mandatory recess. And all learning has to take place in the classroom and they still outperform us. And they're only in school 20 hours a week, four hours a day, one hour is lunch. And they start school, if I remember right, they don't start teaching reading till seven. And you mentioned that one room schoolhouses were eight years and they started around eight or nine and ended whenever the child finished. Well, so, usually, usually about 15 or 16. Some graduated at 14, you know, mm-hmm. but um, it was when they processed through, if they were reading early and reading well, they moved into the advanced class if they could write. And they spent it on penmanship, not writing papers. 
which I thought really goes well with Charlotte Mason. She worked on penmanship using copy work or transcription. Okay, so you've kind of, you've talked about like what that looks like as far as teaching multiple ages, they move up when they've learned things. And then that last year, which I think is so interesting that they learn math that last year, because I read um, somewhere that it, everything you need to know for just basic level up to high school. So up to pre-algebra, you can learn in, was it three months if you are developmentally ready? So, you know, 11 year old, 12 year old could learn all those things in just a short amount of time. Well, um, days. So it makes sense. A hundred days. If they're developmentally ready, they can learn to read, they can learn to write. Um, and it doesn't take a hundred eight hour days of school yeah. to do that. Um, in a hundred days, I was able to teach my children to read and to, to, you know, do the basic writing and to do all the basic math operations, add, subtract, multiply, divide, decimals, fractions, and percents. And um, some of the things, I just broke it down even smaller if their attention span was smaller because we're under, when I started homeschooling here in this state, we had a number of hours we had to teach and certain subjects and everything. Now the laws are totally different. We turn in an affidavit and we have, we have control over the time, the materials, and the methods that we use. And see, they didn't define what time meant. It could be the time when the child is introduced to a subject or the amount of time the child spends on that subject to learn it. Uh, I see learning as a continuum and that there are certain finite principles in math. There are certain in basic math, add, subtract, multiply, divide, fractions, decimals, percents, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and there are certain grammar rules. There's only a certain number of them. There are only a certain number of spelling rules. And some kids, some children are going to learn it faster. And some will take more time to learn it. But if you see it as a continuum and you say, I don't care if they learn it by next week, if they learn it. Mm -hmm. When they learn it, we can go to the next principle and the next principle. And with mastery, they're going for a hundred percent. They're they're going to totally understand it. If you give your child a B because they got eighty percent and you think they're doing really great, that means they didn't learn twenty percent of the material. In the mm -hmm. spiral learning, they're only getting twenty percent new each year in the math, and everything else is repetition. So a child can get a B and not be learning. Mm -hmm that you know sitting on last year's laurels and everything so these parents think i got my kids getting a's and b's and they're not really mastering it and because most of the time in school is in general knowledge and they're getting progress reports the parent doesn't understand that things aren't going as they should be and because a lot of the standardized tests test them in relationship to other children instead of how much did they get correct and know. Yeah. You know, and it's multiple guess. Fascinating. And it's multiple guess. They they just have to circle or fill in the bubble where is where in the one room schoolhouse they had to know it cold. They they weren't given an option to look at several options to figure out which one was the truest one. 
They just wrote their answer. They had to write their answer. They had to know it cold. So many of the college graduates and even master's degree people like myself uh, would do poorly on those tests unless they studied for and prepared for that specific test so that they could come in and nail it. Uh, Based on our education, what we've had to now, I think that most of us would would not do well on it because some of the questions yeah. I'm like, there is such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, now so, I need to know that. <laughs> so, so you're saying so there's mastery versus grade, and mastery it could take your child could learn it in three weeks this concept, or they could take two months, but they don't move on until they learned it, right. and that doesn't work in graded schools but it did work in one room schoolhouses, right? Cause the child just moved up when they had mastered something, correct? Yeah. When they, when they mastered the reading, they moved up and then, um, and the, the, the penmanship, they were then, if they had penmanship that was readable and they could read, uh, the Bible, the Bible's written at the 12th grade level. Most American children struggle reading the Bible, wow. you know, and yeah. yeah, that, that was a mind blower to me. And, yeah. and those who can read the Bible do well. So when I talked about the, the small percentage of children that learn to read well in school, many of them come from dual parent homes where a parent can sit down with them and work with them. But I had a friend whose mother was a fifth grade teacher in Wyoming and she got an entire class. None of them could read. They had passed them up year to year to year and not one of the fifth graders could read. And by law, she's required to teach certain things that year, but she couldn't teach them because they couldn't read. So she sat down with the parents and said, this is what you're going to do to help your children while they're at home. And this is what I'm going to do at school. She taught them to read and then they did the fifth grade curriculum. But technically, legally, she wasn't supposed to remediate and teach her whole class to read. She was just supposed to teach the fifth grade curriculum. So Mm -hmm. every once in a while, you get a teacher who will step outside the box and do something for the students. But a lot of students are going from year to year to year. And the parents think, I'm getting this progress report. It looks great. Have no idea that their child is not doing as well as they could and what they could do at home. That reminds me of the podcast series called Sold a Story. Have you heard of it or listened to it? No. She, uh, It's from American Public Media and she goes into this deep research project on how phonics had been taken out of American education. And how so many kids, I mean, it's not all children, but a large majority need phonics. And by taking phonics out, so many children in America today are essentially illiterate. They're just guessing. They're looking at pictures. They're like, well, what would make sense in the context? They're not sounding out words. And so if if anyone listening to this has not heard of or listened to this podcast series, go listen to it now. I posted it on social media and I actually had quite a few mothers tell me, oh my gosh, my kindergartner wasn't allowed to move to first grade because she couldn't read. So I spent the summer 
doing phonics with her. Now she reads great. And she's like, I bet that's why she couldn't read. I bet they were using this certain whole word approach instead of phonics. So, well, and here's the rub on the whole word approach. They want them to guess by context clues, but children cognitively don't understand what it means to guess by context clues when they're five or six or seven or eight. They don't. <laughs> my oldest son was sitting in this class and they wanted him to guess. And so he would guess. He would just throw out anything. And, mm -hmm. and so he got graded down, but yet he was reading the scriptures at home. But because he didn't fit in their program the way they were doing it, uh, they graded him two years below grade level. And, and that summer, <laughs> that summer, I took him down to a uh, a class for gifted kids and writing because he, he had shut down writing because of what was going on in school. And it was down at the University of Denver. And the teacher pulled me aside afterwards. And he says, do you understand that your child can read at the college level? No, he was not. Wow. He was nine. I said, what do you mean? He says, he picked up my laser, my book, my college textbook on lasers. And he was reading and discussing with me what he was reading. And I'm just oh like, my mind blown. Yes. They told when me it, that he was And that was behind. the same child that was told he was two years behind, behind because he wasn't reading the books assigned for his grade. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, when I look at mastery, the benefit of mastery learning is it recognizes the child's development and it recognizes what the child already knows. Yes. Because it's starting from where, where their knowledge leaves off and, you know, and it goes at the child's pace. And if you are spend, if you take 15 to 20 minutes a day and you're spending it one-on-one -on -one with each child, in that 15 minutes, you can do a short reading lesson. Uh, you can show them how to write, a le write letters and you can teach them a math concept. And some days you'll do reading, some days you'll do a math concept, but as you go through it, they'll learn it quite quickly when they're going at their pace. Yes, But if you assume that they know it and now you're going to get second grade information because you completed first grade, whether or not they retained it or not, you know, but as they're going through on the mastery stuff, they take the test at the end of the chapter of learning that math and they're able to see what areas need to go back and, and address and address that and then move forward. Mm-hmm. There's no pressure that you have to learn this now because the rest of the class is moving on. That's true. And, and you can also set something aside. I had a six-year-old son that saw everybody doing copy work and he wanted to do copy work and he sat down and it was so laborious for him. And I could tell that his fingers were just not ready for it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know what, let's, let's just set this aside. You don't need to do this right now. Why don't you do this right now? And uh, we'll return back in a few months. Well, six months later, I walked in and he was writing on his own because he decided he wanted to do it and he, he worked at it until he did, but I did not want him 
to give up and then hate writing at that point. And yeah. I knew he had years to develop that skill. And if it was six months later or even a year later before he really got started, he would be fine once he got started and was ready and he would take mm -hmm. off. And he did. Yeah. But we Children. do that in homeschool. You cannot do that in a public school or a private yeah. school classroom. So there's a book called School Can Wait by Raymond Moore. And he talks about the research of all the processes, the sensory, the intellectual, everything that needs to be working, fully functioning before you can learn to read and write. And his and all the research he's done, and it has been, was it like 5,000 studies that he had looked at um, and condensed it? And he said it's between eight and 10 years old, which that's around when children started for with one room schoolhouses. And, but when I tell moms this, they're like, oh, I just, it's so hard to break out of the mindset that children need to start at five in kindergarten. And I can just say from experience, and I'm sure you can say this even more so, is that when children are ready to read, they will they will grow by leaps and bounds. They will go two years. And same with piano. I have a lot of, when I taught piano, I had a lot of students who were put in at five or six because that's kind of what everyone did or they want to start as early as they could. And we I would teach them a concept and their little hands were trying to play these notes and it was so hard for them. And then I'd have a student start at 10 and within a year, he was playing for Elise by Beethoven because he, his hands were ready. His, hands his were mind ready. was ready. His mind, his eyes were ready. And he loved it. He loved it. And then I'd have kids who had been doing piano lessons for four years. That was the same age. And they weren't at for Elise because they were so frustrated and shut down um, from the early years of trying to do something that their body wasn't ready for. And I feel the same thing goes for writing and for reading when we try to force it too early, it just, they, they start to get this mindset of, I can't do it. This is hard. Um, anyway, so there's that wisdom of just, okay, children start at eight years old or old, you know, nine, like Almanzo Wilder in the little house books, or, um, when Anne of Green Gables taught school in one of her books, I think it was Anne of Avonlea and they have the two orphans living with them. And, um, and I think it was Anne that said, I think he should go into school and, Marilla's like, he's seven. What? He needs to be at least eight or nine. Like that is heresy to have him start that young. <laughs> well, some states, okay, there are two states, Pennsylvania and Washington state, where the compulsory school age, start eight, is eight. There are 13 states that the compulsory start age is seven. But Interesting, all those schools offer kindergarten. They're required by law to offer kindergarten. But they're not required. Yes, only 10 states require kindergarten at five. Interesting. Seven more allow you to redshirt. So that is 17. The rest of them is uh, six, seven, and eight, depending on your faith. So it's just cultural that we're like, there's this pressure. I need to get my kid in. He needs to be reading by six. Well, it's not, it's worse than that now because, because of the studies done in the, back in the 1960s on, there was a study, it's a landmark study, the high scope, the Perry high scope study was 128 children, 128. 
These children were below 70 IQ. Uh, they came from broken homes. Their moms were dropouts and they were at high risk for school failure. And they, it was play-based. And they were making progress, but when they went to school after preschool, they would drop in their abilities, which was kind of weird. But during the study, they were given nutritional support and parental assistance. The teachers would come into the homes and teach the parents how to do things to support their child. The very last year, they added a group in that within the 128 that was focused on they were focused on academics and they taught the parents how to the mothers how to support the academics and they taught the other mothers how to support the guided play and the and just play-based preschool well all the children's iqs raised of course they're getting better nutrition and they're getting more parental attention they're getting more mm -hmm. conversation. And then they go back, they go into school and their IQs would drop. I mean, wow. you know, their IQs had gone up into the normal range and the and the children that had the um, academics went into the like 117, which is the superior range. Yeah. But then it would drop down and they all stayed in the normal range after they dropped down when they started school. And they thought, oh, uh, teaching uh, academics to preschoolers are the way to go. Now, remember, these mm -hmm. children were substandard because they didn't have good nutrition. They didn't have good home life and other things. And they were put in a situation where all that was supported. And then that put them normal, you know. Yeah. And. But it launched a preschool mindset that children need academics and preschool. 10 years out in the study, they followed these kids through and they found that the children that were in the academic preschools that had the highest IQs when they started at kindergarten um, had the most trouble with authority, the most problems in school, uh, less likely to be married to the, to the uh, parent of their, other, of their children uh, more likely to get in trouble with the law. They had authority issues. The children that had play base were emotionally stable. Uh, they could do a lot of things. But those studies were done on 128 disadvantaged children. They weren't looking at normal families. So yeah. in, in the 2000s, Berkeley and Stanford did a study on 14,000 students. So this is a major university. This is across the nation, uh, across all different um, demographics, race, uh, two-parent homes working and everything. They found that children that came from advantaged homes, the longer they spent in preschool, uh, the more aggressive they got. They also wow. found that children that were at home instead of at preschool had better language skills, even though the preschools were language based. Because in the home, you have more back and forth in conversation that develops the brain connections for mm -hmm. verbal development that you cannot duplicate in a preschool. 
I've been in preschools and kindergartens, and I was surprised at how little they were allowed to talk to adults. It's raise your hand, and then we're reading a book, we're doing this, and it's wait your turn, wait your turn to talk. And when they do talk, it's long, long drawn out descriptions. And, and it's like, well, everyone needs a turn. And, you know, I get that. But when children are needing to learn how to speak and learn how to converse, practice their language skills, they need a mom one-on-one -on -one mom time where the mom's doing dishes and you have that, you know, 15 minute monologue so the, where the child's telling you. So the children from Advantage Homes in the preschools had language delays, hmm. you know, and the children that benefited the most were children who, whose parents spoke English as a second language. And so they were getting to hear ling English from native speakers all day. So mm -hmm. So that would make sense. And then Harvard did a study, and I think it was like 4,500 students. And they found that from advantaged homes, the longer they were in preschool, the more uh, attachment issues they had later on. And I thought, that's interesting because that kind of tracks after that study back in the 60s that showed that those children had attachment issues and uh, issues with authority and all kinds of things when they were in academics. And part of the problem is, or the biggest problem is, is when we introduce academics there, we're shoving aside the things that their bodies were designed to do to learn and to develop and to prepare executive functions and everything else for seat time. And so then the brain isn't getting the development it needs. And so it's not it's not making the connections and, and integrating the way it should be because it's focused over here on academics. So another study that Stanford did, um, uh, students in Denmark, they start school there when they are six years old in kindergarten. So they start first grade at seven and they found that if students waited a year waited till they were seven to start play-based kindergarten is what they have there, which means they wouldn't be starting academics till they were eight. Mm -hmm. If they delayed kindergarten by a year there, they found that it eliminated 74% of ADHD symptoms, wow. which tells me what's happening is by delaying it a year, these children's brains are allowed to develop instead of being derailed. And so there are structural things that are happening in the brain over here that makes it easier for self-regulation and impulse control and delayed gratification and other things that aren't happening um, when you put kids in academics early and that's what your focus is. If they see yeah. that mom gets excited because you're doing doing this academics at preschool age and you're thinking wow he's excited because we're doing doing this he wants to do this no he wants to do this because it's pleasing you yeah he's not given the choice to do the things his brain needs to integrate the climbing the jumping the balancing the spinning the crawling developing the visual pathways even yeah. you know walking develops the walking and running the tracking of the eyes moving back and forth because your head wobbles and 
the brain has to adjust for that to keep everything level in the brain. Mm -hmm. And crawling uh, develops convergence. All of these things that we see as frivolous play and hold our kids hostage to, you get your workbook page done and we'll let you play. It's like saying, well, when you do the pencil, pencil pushing that mom wants you to do, then we'll allow you to do the things that your body needs to uh, be healthy and develop. We don't see that that's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because the things that we want them to do, to be able to do, um, it needs to be preceded by the things that they're trying to do. Um, it's just this almost catch 22. Well, one more thing is that, um, putting children in age and grade things, I, I listed down a few points when, when we put them in the age grade, they're ignoring their developmental needs. Uh, they're ignoring their developmental readiness. The bright are held back and are bored with spiral uh, repetition. The late bloomers are not ready for the information, but they have 80% repeat so they can get a, ba a B and still be behind. And then a majority do not master basic skills according to the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is a test that's required by Congress. And then many children drop out or fall through the cracks. How does a run room schoolhouse work if there's one teacher and multiple age students? Do the students do their own lessons? Does the teacher teach, you know, history or geography to everyone? Um, how does she or he pick? what level to teach because there's so many levels okay there's no specific level to general knowledge okay. two children that are eight years apart can be sitting in the same class and learning about china and so general knowledge was taught to everybody uh the the advanced students are already reading and they're already writing and they're already doing uh beginning to do math the teacher would put math problems on the board and have some students come up there to work on them, or she might give a reading assignment for them to read or give them an opportunity to go take a book off the shelf to read because there was a lot of uh, learning that was based on interests. So she'd have some interesting books on the shelf and they would have an opportunity to um, be reading while she worked with the beginning students on their reading and she partnered uh, be beginning, beginning readers with ones who had learned the very beginning stuff so that when she wasn't working with them and they could be partnered and read with each other while she then worked with the older students. So I took this concept and I thought, how do I make this work in my home? I studied my, my, um, husband's grandfather wrote about the one-room schoolhouse he taught in. My grandfather taught in one. My dad went to one. My mother-in-law's mother taught in one. My mother-in-law's uh, father taught one-room schoolhouse teachers throughout the state of New York science on how to do that. So I thought, okay, this is really quick how I did it. Uh, morning walk. I felt that if we we left the house and, and came back in the front door, we put ourselves in a different mental space and it opened up our mind, our 
oxygen to the brain and everything else, the daily walks, and they see the things and the changes in nature, which was really good. We come in and we do scripture study. Some days it would be one verse or a, what, a scripture story. Some days it would be longer, uh, just depending on their attention span. The second thing we did, you know, scripture study. When we came in the front door, we did scripture study, uh, classic read aloud. Some days we were able to read a whole chapter. Other days we were lucky to get through a page because they were antsy or whatever. You know, something happened the day before or they were excited about something that was happening. And so I ran with their attention span because that's what they're going to remember. If I push beyond that, they might get through the stuff, but are they going to remember it? And then the third thing I did was daily gateways. Daily gateways was the general knowledge. And I just broke it up. Art and spelling on Monday. They got an artist a month, uh, artwork a week, one spelling rule a week. And then I would tell them the rule. And then I would show them words that followed that rule so that they could see the pattern as well. And the children that are more concrete thinkers, which are more children than not, uh, learning the rule is abstract but seeing the pattern helps okay so tuesday was music they got a musician a month a musical piece a week and then a grammar rule uh and with examples and then wednesday uh they'd get stem they'd get a scientist or a mathematician or inventor and they would get either nature studies or experiment, which is another type of nature study. They're observing, you know, um, yeah. or math. They got math every other week. And that gave them a week to, to wrap their mind around that concept. Um, Thursday, we did world leaders, a nation a week. And year one, we did Anglo-Saxon roots. No, Hebrew, uh, beginning Hebrew. They learned the letters, the uh, symbolic literal meaning of them and the number value they thought that was cool they were learning the yeah. language that other adults couldn't read you know yeah um year two they got anglo-saxon roots year three latin roots and year four greek roots and the greek letters now learning the hebrew and the greek letters helps them with understanding the scriptures better but it also um, expands their symbolic language in their mind and okay. which, which helps which helps them but learning the roots helps them understand what words mean so even when they haven't seen a word before if they recognize the root or the prefix or the suffix on it they start they can break it down and that helps them with their vocabulary but we're only mm -hmm. learning one a week and the pattern of words that use that root or affix or prefix okay okay and friday they got a poet a month and a, po a poem a week and they got a state a week and that basically took scripture classic read aloud and the gateway took about an hour just okay. for that that's so doable and, yeah and then the second <laughs> and that's hour, stuff you did all together yes we right. did that this all together family style all together right. family style and then the second hour i divided it into four sections recess which they all need and mm -hmm. which is helpful if you have an older child or older children and younger children 
because then you can do rotations um, and put, when you're working one-on-one -on -one with a child, another child can be in recess with the younger children, playing, reading to them or whatever. So we did recess. I did one-on-one -on -one with every child, whatever they needed, what, wherever they were on their skills things. For little children, little ones that aren't reading yet, it may be building a fort, reading a story to them, um, singing with them, playing games, whatever they need, it's attention. And they thrive because they want my attention. I take the younger kids first. And while I'm doing the younger kids, mm -hmm. the older children are in what I call self-selected self interest-led learning projects. It could be reading. It could be creating a dinosaur book, uh, doing a diorama, uh, diorama or preparing a presentation to share the rest of the family, doing research on an individual and they can come as that individual and say, hi, I'm Columbus. I'm going to tell you about my life or, oh, that's or <laughs> I'm a newscaster with XYZ and I'm going to tell you about Ivan the Terrible. Boy, he was awful. And then they can go into it. <laughs> that way they never, because they have that newscaster thing, they never have to play the evil guy. They can learn about the evil guy and they can warn you about the evil guy without getting in that evil character. Whereas with the other ones, they can talk about the good things that they did, et cetera. Yeah. So, so they have those three set areas that they can go to. They can be in recess or one-on-one -on -one with me, or they can do be in that self-selected interest-led learning projects. And those hone the skills they're learning from me. Okay, they start using uh -huh. those skills to write their papers, to put their book together on dinosaurs or whatever their passion is. And it that's that one room schoolhouse part where the kid can go over to the book, uh, the bookshelf and pull off the book that interests him, you know, so that he can mm -hmm. share that with his class and his teacher. Uh, the one on one is where they learn their skills. So I rotate my children through. So that first round, I am with the youngest children. And all the old children, older children are in self-directed interest-led learning for their first round. And then mm -hmm. each child gets one-on-one -on -one with me, recess, or a second round of self-directed learning. And that's where it should be. They're getting two segments of interest-led learning. They're getting one yes. section of me teaching them skills. When I started doing this, the first day I did it, I did my oldest child first and my youngest one lost it. And I thought, okay, we will start with the youngest attention span first. <laughs> and she was delighted to play with her older siblings. And they were delighted to have a break. Mm -hmm. And so that worked out really wonderful in that regard. And so we did the, the first hour together and then the second hour through rotations. And that brought both sides of what was going on in that one-room schoolhouse in a way I could use it in my family. Yeah. I When you told me about this, I thought, that's brilliant. You're having that time where you're learning as a family. Um, you're doing some lessons. But then your children have time to do what Charlotte Mason would call self-education, which she believed there is no other thing. We have to be able to educate ourselves. We can't be passive. We need to be active, right? And so they have that time set apart. I don't care what you're doing as long as you are learning and you are 
acting on what you've learned through projects. Um, I know my boys love making videos. They love, they loved using stop motion. So I'll say, okay, uh, make a stop motion about a historical event that you learned today. Or I love the newscast. Um, I think they would love that. There's um, on Apple, on the Movie Maker, I think on Apple phones, um, they have an app called the Movie Maker and they have lots of templates. And so it makes it really easy for kids. I think there's a newscast one. And so there's that. Um, they love drawing. So making a graphic novel, they love doing that more than just writing a whole paragraph for, or an essay. There's just so many things that kids can do that they're passionate about and they have that time set apart. Hey, just, you know, you just do this during this time, read, um, make something and then come show me. And you said you have that, you have some one-on-one -on -one time with them. And I guess it would depend on how many kids you have. For me, I can do 20 to 30 minutes each of, cause I only have three, <laughs> um, but, or it could be even less. Well, I kept 15, it, I minutes. kept it to 15 minutes a child to 20 minutes max. Mm -hmm. Um, I had three older ones and let me see, Jennifer, Jeremy, James, and Mary was the younger one when I was doing this uh, rotation. As they grow up, then you have all of them in the rotations and you can still do recess and they can play games. They can, they can, uh, during that recess, they can play games, they can take a walk, they can do exercises, whatever, or you can do exercises all together and then just do the three rotations. I okay. mean, you know, the rotations with the, with the um, two self-directed and the one, but I tried to keep it short. Somebody listened. I knew she went to my webinar because she signed up for it. And then she wrote a blog post about all this new program she was doing. Um, but she used an hour per child for each thing. Okay. And that's beyond their attention span. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't long before the, the blog disappeared. And I thought, interesting. Uh, it seemed to work out. <laughs> yeah, but by keeping it shorter. Now, there was one day that my old uh, oldest daughter in that group of four, um, she hit a wall trying to understand borrowing and carrying. And regrouping and mm -hmm. it took me an hour to figure out why she was struggling she understood the process but she didn't understand the why and most of it was because of my language and then I realized mm -hmm. oh okay children 80 percent of children don't have crossover before 12 okay and so you can take a uh, class of 106 graders and write the number 371, 371, and circle the seven in the uh, tens place, and then have a group of 770 and seven items and tell them to circle the group of items that that number in that place represents. 80% okay. will circle the seven. Interesting. And so I had, you know, and I all of a sudden I had this epiphany. That's what's going on. So I said, okay, 
we're going to have to call these what they are. This is seven tens. And now when you added this together, it made one ten and three ones left over. So we're going to leave the three ones, three units down here. And we're going to take the one ten over and add it to the seven tens. And that makes it eight tens. But when you say, oh, you just carry the one over. Does it make they sense? They <laughs> see the process, but it's not, it's not reaching them. You know, it took me an mm -hmm. hour. Everybody else was, you know, the ones who were playing were just happy to play. The one who was working on his uh, project, he was doing a diorama. He had uh, studied the flags of the world and he drew out the flags of the different countries. And he then learned about the battles of, he was nine and he learned about the battles of World War II and the, and the little skit that he put on showed us how the allied armies came in and yeah, the whole nine yards and the flags. Wow. He was so tickled, but he was so engrossed in doing what he was doing that I wasn't pressured. I was able to stay with her until we found resolution. Now, if I had gone over an hour, I'd probably say, let me pray about this mm -hmm. and do some research. And we're going to try this again tomorrow in a different way. But I had, I had just, I was not wanting to give up and she was still had attention. And I thought, okay, I'm going to work with her and we're going to do this. And all the other children were okay because they knew that if they ran into a problem that I would take that kind of time with them. Yeah, But I only had to do that once, one day with one child ever. And most of the time, just 15 to 20 minutes, which like you said, that's, that's about the max that adults can pay attention is I think 18 minutes or something on one thing. So just, yeah, that, that small amount of time is enough. And you know what I, I love about this is during the hour, everyone's learning together. And when you try to um, compartmentalized learning. So this is what kindergarten, kindergartners should be reading picture books, right? Which my kindergarten age child loves picture books, but he also loved reading Treasure Island with the older boys. And I think he remembered more and understood more than my seven and nine-year-old. He loved it. And what's sad is if I said, okay, you're going to go to kindergarten where you're going to learn kindergarten books stuff and read kindergarten books, he would have missed out on that. We also did a little bit of algebra with my oldest, just basic pre-algebra, you know, X plus seven equals nine. Well, my kindergartner became fascinated with algebra and he wanted to give us those kinds of problems for a week or more. And what I love about family learning and this one room schoolhouse is that little kids are introduced to ideas. They aren't required to remember it, or they're not required to regurgitate it out on a test and prove their understanding, they can just passively be absorbing these ideas. And, and I found that they love it. They love it. And with the, um, I think you mentioned with during the two hours that older kids can help their younger siblings. And I've also found that my seven-year-old loves helping my five-year-old. He loves it. He loves teaching him how to add and subtract, you know, under 10. And he is solidifying that knowledge even more because he's teaching it. Um, in one book that I really enjoyed, it was called Hunt, Gather, Parent. And she said that in other countries, 
where um, she studied parenting in all these different countries. She said in America, we really underutilize older siblings because in other countries, they give so much responsibility to older siblings and the older siblings thrive. They love it and they mature and grow up because of that. And she said, we really need to start using siblings more older kids to help younger kids and not just assume we have to take it all on ourselves. Well, and that's, that was the beauty of the um, multi-age classroom of the one room schoolhouse. It was really patterned after what happened in homes that were literate. Fathers would teach their children to read. Um, They would do Shakespeare. They would read the Bible. They would learn math in their home. And it wasn't a grade. It was just a continuum. Well, when you're done, then you use it. You know, you just keep on doing it until you get to that point where you need to be. One thing, one thing I did with the first hour when it was general knowledge, when I was introducing a new topic, I always start by asking, what do you know about this? That way, older children or even younger children that know something about what we're going to talk about have the opportunity to shine. It kind of takes away that, uh, I already know this, yeah. you know, and it gives them an opportunity to share what they know. And then when they're done, I can say, that was really great. That was close. He did do that. He did do that, but he also did this. And then I could, I could take off and do something. I recognize what they knew that was right. Yes, he did this. He did this. He did that. Um, Or she did this, or she was known for that. Where did you learn that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, oh, I saw it on, uh, when we went to the, to the art museum or whatever, you know, and you can use, you can use Charlotte Mason picture studies in this because they get an art artwork a week um how she did music studies you can memorize the poetry uh you can take passages from what you read in the scriptures or from what you read in the uh living book the classic uh for uh copy work for transcription so there's it's all there without and then i then i took it and i put it in a grab and go format yeah i was gonna say all this work, like I know some moms will be like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could ever put all that together, but you have compiled what worked, what didn't work, what, you, you know, everything that you have done with your kids and you have it as a curriculum that moms can use family style. And then they, kids can do their own learning during the two hours, which is fantastic. I call it the power of an hour gateway to a classical education. Okay. And that's available on your website, which I will put in the show notes if moms are interested. Um, and I, yeah, I was so impressed with how much that you can fit in in an hour and how much you have. I mean, art and music and even, like you said, Greek and Hebrew, all these things and a um, grammar concept and math. And it's just phenomenal. You don't have to and stay up Saturday night researching it let me see what artists are we going to do this month and what musician and and find their works and and put together a bio on them i i've done that and then i have links for further uh study for those who have older kids 
And on my site, I also have, well, what if you have older kids like junior high and high school age? What can they do with this? Well, it can be used as a roadmap to okay. go into deeper learning on for themselves. So, okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate you being here and chatting with me. I I feel like we could just talk forever about this uh, education and family. But um, one thing I just want to share before we're done is just how much I believe in family style learning and that I truly believe this is the way that Heavenly Father wants us to learn is through families and having the mixed ages, the adults talking together, learning together. It's an atmosphere, um, an environment, a lifestyle of learning when you do it family style. And it, it relieves you, the mom of so much stress because you think I have to teach my fifth grader, fifth grade science and my sixth grader, sixth grade science. And if you can do all those general um, knowledge or like content-based subjects together, then it relieves so much for you as a mom and your children actually learn more. They learn more. I just want parents to know that they can enjoy the journey. I mean, I've had moms contact me that said their kids were giving them so much pushback because they were using workbooks and busy work and they were treating education as a domestic, as they do domestic chores and they were getting pushback on chores, but they mom hadn't learned from that. And then they started doing the same thing with academics and it was horrible because they were in chore wars trying to get their kids to clean and do these things. And they were in chore wars with academics trying to get their kids to do academics, spending the whole day and they felt like they had no fun or life in their life anymore. With power of an hour, it it moves you forward in a regular, consistent way and gives you an opportunity to do other things, to learn the lost arts, to learn how to cook and to sew and to take field trips and to travel. I can do this in the car. Yeah. You know, I could do this in the car. And I, I had a son that was um, going for job interviews and he had moved home uh, during that time. And we had one car. So I drive him up to the interview and I would school the kids out in the car. Or we'd get on the lawn out there and we'd sit out and we'd do nature studies out there and everything else. And power of an hour can also be compressed down to one scripture, one paragraph in the story, but you've moved forward. And, yeah. and then the 20 <laughs> minutes on your gateway, it's doable. I want people to know that they can have joy in their journey and still have a life, still run a home, still have family. And it's workbook free. It's busy work free. It's busy work free, but the children learn the writing skills naturally through this process using Charlotte Mason methods. I love it. Well, thank you. There's no better testimony to homeschooling and, and one room schoolhouse than that. Well, thank you again so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us moms who are in the trenches. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can find this episode's show notes, as well as more information about this topic on our website, www.simplewonders.org. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and or rating the podcast, or even better, share it with friends or family. If you'd like to further support our work here, you can donate by clicking the link in our profile. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to discuss our next topic. Until then, go out and work some wonders.